Have you ever heard the phrase, and some of you uh, literary fans or people who like to read or are familiar with this terminology will will know what I'm talking about, but the the rest of you, have have you ever heard the phrase, um, an embedded narrative? Embedded narrative. Think along the lines of of like a, a story within a story. It's a it's a literary device that is used uh, to 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 tell to tell stories. It's it's found all throughout the scriptures. Uh, take for example, whenever we we see Jesus telling a parable, that is that is a narrative within a narrative, a story within a story. Similar to embedded narratives are nested stories, where you have an sort of an internal supplemental story that serves to t- help tell and support the larger frame story that it's, it's, it's embedded or nested inside of. And you can find this technique used all throughout literary history, and you can find it uh, all throughout cinematic history. If you're a fan of, of cinema, then uh, you would be familiar with this way of telling a story. Um, one of my favorite childhood movies growing up, um, many of you know, is, is The Princess Bride. And The Princess Bride is an example of this way of telling a story. It's, the, the movie is not about you know, sword fighting and mythical creatures or even true love as much as you would want to make the story about, about that. Uh, but no, all of that part of the movie is serving to tell the larger story, which is about a grandpa who's bonding with his video games-obsessed grandson, right? That's, what the, that's the, big, the bigger frame story that matters, the grandpa's bonding with the grandson through the power of storytelling. Well, today's passage in uh, Luke's gospel in chapter 8, and if you grab the guest Bible, we'll be on page 831. Today's passage is another example of a story within a story. And the two stories are not disconnected, but instead they, they, have, they have some things in common that Luke, the gospel writer, uh, places them where he does and how he does and interrelates them for a reason, which I aim to explore together with you for this morning. Now, the larger story, the, the frame story, as it were, um, and, and we'll get to, to how that connects to, to the rest of Luke later, but at least in the passage here, the larger story begins there in verse 40, and it will run all the way down to verse 56. Uh, in this larger story, Jesus has just returned across the sea uh, back to Galilee after his trip to the other side in the land of the Gerasenes. And there in the land of the Gerasenes, Jesus had been confronted by uh, a demon-possessed man that he subsequently healed. But now Jesus has returned back, and upon return, he's met once again by the crowds. The crowds are there waiting for him. They've been camping out, just waiting for his return. And of course, there's this man named uh, Jairus. He is a, a leader of a local synagogue, and he is there in his desperation for Jesus to come and, and hopefully heal his dying one and only daughter. It's a dramatic story that we encounter here beginning in verse 40. But on his way, as Jesus is making his way to, to, to hopefully bring healing and restoration to this little girl, we read this encounter that we're going to focus on this morning beginning in the second half of verse 42. So let's look here together in Luke chapter 8, beginning in the second half of verse 42. As Jesus went with him, he was surrounded by the crowds. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding, and she could find no cure. 
Coming up behind Jesus, she touched the fringe of his robe, and immediately the bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. Everyone denied it, and Peter said, Master, this whole crowd is pressing up against you. But Jesus said, Someone deliberately touched me, for I felt healing power go out from me. When the woman realized that she could not stay hidden, she began to tremble and fell to her knees in front of him. The whole crowd heard her explain why she had touched him and that she had been immediately healed. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Jesus, everywhere he goes, is a man surrounded. In our story here, he's surrounded by that which is considered unclean. Whether it's on the east side of the sea in the land of the Gerasenes, he's, he's around the, the unclean demoniac in the Gentile east. Or whether it's back here on the west side in the Jewish west where you have this woman with a hemorrhage and later in verse 51, which we didn't read, you have the, the corpse of a little girl. Everywhere Jesus goes, he is in contact with that which is considered unclean. And that's kind of a big deal. Because, of course, in the Jewish hierarchy of values, the distinctions of clean and unclean were of central importance. For something or for someone to be considered unclean means that they are, in a sense, unfit for the worship of God. And it meant access to, whether it was the tabernacle or later the temple, or sometimes to the whole community of God, all those things would be restricted to those things or those people considered unclean. And yet, Jesus is undeterred by the social, ritual, ceremonial implications of contact with those considered unclean. And he ministers to everyone regardless. He is surrounded by that which is unclean. He's also surrounded just by crowds of people. Once again, we see this in Luke, and this is sort of the, the theme that's tying together all these different sermons over these weeks. Everywhere Jesus goes, people are surrounding him. We're told back in verse 40 that the crowds were waiting for him. Imagine that, everywhere you go, being stalked by a crowd of people. That was the life of Jesus. They were ubiquitous to his ministry, which could not be any more unlike my own <laughs> ministry experience. I have no celebrity of any kind. I live a life of almost complete anonymity. I can come to and fro and almost no one knows who I am. And frankly, I kind of like that. I don't want to be stalked everywhere I go by, by crowds and crowds of people. The closest thing I ever experienced to something considered like celebrity was a few years ago when somehow I managed to win the Daily Advance Reader, Reader's Choice Award for Best Pastor Priest in the region, and you're laughing, and that's good, because I laugh, I laugh at that too. I didn't even know that was a thing. I literally have never heard of this before, and um, I literally have no idea how my name even ended up on the certificate, because no one, no one knows who I am, and maybe that's why my name ended up on the certificate. Maybe it's because they don't know me. <laughs> that's, <laughs> I just attribute it to the fact that it was the COVID year, and everything was wonky that year, and so it just fits that my name ended up on that certificate that year. But for Jesus, celebrity and recognition and even a degree of notoriety for some were an occupational hazard. Everywhere he goes, the people follow. Verse 42, 
in our English translations, it says he was surrounded by the crowds. But literally, the language used there by Luke literally means the crowds were choking him. They were, they were pressed in so tight. It's the same verb used in the parable of the sower and, and the seed that was thrown, and it was choked among the weeds. That's the, the experience of Jesus in this context. Tr- try to picture that. Being in a crowd so dense, so tightly packed, that it's like you're being choked. The, the closest thing I've ever experienced to that was when I was in college. And no, I don't mean Bible college. I mean pre-Bible college. Those of you that may remember my history there, I spent a year and a half or so at a state university uh, before finally surrendering to God's call and transferring over to Bible college. Um, I went to Ohio University, not Ohio State, but Ohio State's, you know, little brother there in the state, Ohio University there in Athens, Ohio, went there for about a year or so. And the tradition then, and I mean, that was a long time ago now, I don't know if it's even still a thing anymore, but at the time, Ohio University was known for their, their Halloween festivities. Uh, festivities. And every, every year, the students would all dress up and they'd go down to Court Street, we called it Uptown, we'd go uptown and pack out Court Street and it was just this great big sinful Halloween celebration. And I, if you know anything about Athens, Ohio, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's known for being a party school and just full of debauchery and every evil thing. And that's why I was there. I was running from God. I was trying to hide from, from his pursuit, his will for my life. And I found, myself, I found myself at OU. And I'll never forget the experience of being on Court Street for Halloween. And there were moments, and I promise you, where the students were packed so tightly in that street that you could almost, and, and I think maybe people a little smaller than I could pull this off, where you could almost just lift your feet and be carried along with the crowd. It was unbelievable. And that's the picture of, of, the, of the moment here. Everyone is just packed so tight to get close to Jesus, to, to see him. And, and it is in this context that Jairus shows up. How he manages to even get to Jesus, we don't know. The text doesn't say. But we know in his desperation, he falls at Jesus' feet. He pleads for Jesus to come and heal his dying daughter. And as they begin making their way to his home, we're told that a woman touched him. A woman who, in all likelihood, was probably suffering from some sort of protracted gynecological malady. And this would have been a significant problem. I mean, it would be a significant problem today, but it was especially a significant problem for her in that culture at that time. According to the law, the Torah, a woman uh, in her menstrual cycle was considered, uh, in her period, was considered unclean, ceremonially unclean. And she was also considered unclean for seven days after its conclusion. And she would be unclean until she went through the the ritual of water purification. You can find this, by the way, um, back in Luke chapter 15, uh, this passage, this chapter, which deals with the the wonderful topic of bodily discharge. And we're we're grateful for the scripture. It's inspired and inerrant and true, and and it's authoritative, and it's, it's, it's the word of God from cover to cover. But some chapters are just less enjoyable than others, I reckon, uh, when we come to them. But here we have this, this section of the law that deals with uh, bodily discharge for both male and female. And here's the, the section here beginning in verse 19 that, that has implications 
for our passage. It says in verse 19, whenever a woman has her menstrual period, she will be ceremonially unclean for seven days. All right, we, are, we already know that, but, but listen to this. Anyone who touches her during that time will be unclean until evening. Anything on which the woman lies or sits during the time of her period will be unclean. If any of you touch her bed, you must wash your clothes and bathe yourself in water, and you will remain unclean until evening. If you touch any object she has sat on, you must wash your clothes and bathe yourself in water, and you will remain unclean until evening. This includes her bed or any other object she has sat on. You will be unclean until evening if you touch it. If a man has sexual intercourse with her and her blood touches him, her menstrual impurity will be transmitted to him. He will remain unclean for seven days, and any bed on which he lies will be unclean. But listen to this in verse 25. If a woman has a flow of blood for many days that is unrelated to her menstrual period, or if the blood continues beyond the normal period, she is ceremonially unclean. As during her menstrual period, the woman will be unclean as long as the discharge continues. Any bed she lies on and any object she sits on during that time will be unclean, just as during her normal menstrual period. If any of you touch these things, you will be ceremonially unclean. You must wash your clothes and bathe yourself in water, and you will remain unclean until evening. And it goes, the passage goes on and continues uh, about the, the sacrifice and the, 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 the operation of the priest and, and, and how those considered unclean in this context make their way to a, stat, a status of, of being clean. Now, with that in the background of your mind, imagine being this woman in that context. Twelve years. Twelve years of continuous uncleanness, which meant no contact. No contact with other people. which meant no access to the temple. No participation in the corporate life of God's people. Mark chapter 5, verse 26 adds an additional detail that Luke leaves out. I think it's kind of funny that Luke leaves it out, and you'll see why. Mark says, she had, this is in addition, she had suffered a great deal from many doctors, and over the years she had spent everything she had to pay them. But she had gotten no better. In fact, she had gotten worse. I think that's kind of, not that her situation is comical. I think it's mildly comical that Luke leaves that out of his gospel. Luke, as you remember from Colossians 4, is that beloved doctor. I don't think he left it out for some sort of self-serving purpose. I just think that the Holy Spirit guided him to leave it out because it, for the sake of, of his story, it was unessential to his telling of the story. But knowing that from Mark, it enhances what we already sense and what we already feel and what we already know about this woman's situation as it is. She is in a state of utter despair. She is in a, in a, a state of absolute helplessness. There is nothing she can do, there's nothing anyone else can do to make this stop, to help her, to save her, to restore her. She is a woman literally at the end of her rope. 
And Luke tells us in verse 44 that the woman at the end of her rope reaches out to touch the end of Jesus' robe. And I wonder, what was her motive? What did she actually expect to happen? I mean, we can assume the text doesn't exactly say what her motive was. It's a bit obscure. We just know that she needed to get as close to him just to touch the very tip of his robe if she could. I think in the the ancient world in which these people lived, it was common for people to believe that rulers or, you know, great people, you know, they, they could... They, that people who had power or possessed some sort of virtue were able to bless those that touched them. There's stories of Alexander the Great, who was uh, often mobbed by people wherever he went, just trying to get close to him in the hopes that his touch would somehow transmit his aura and his power. That just, if I could just get close to Alexander, maybe a little bit of what he has would, would rub off onto me. And before we get, you know, Laugh, laugh at people or look down our nose at people like that. Uh, just take a look at any concert or uh, red carpet you know, ceremony for the latest movie or any time a celebrity makes their way through the public sphere. People today are no different than people then. They, they, they will mob the celebrity. If I could just get close to him or her, if, if they would just look at me, if they would just reach out and touch me, oh, I'll never wash this hand again. It's, it's kind of ridiculous the way people think about other people. But before we go judging the woman, consider once more her desperation. Put yourself in her shoes. And remember the reputation of Jesus. It's not, who, not too hard to put two and two together. And maybe if you were in her state, maybe you would do the same thing. I think there's also something to be said about the power of physical touch. Especially for someone who has been deprived of it for so long. I once had a conversation with uh, Pastor Chuck. You remember Chuck? He was here for Revival just a few months ago. This was years ago. We We were on the phone and having one of our deep, you know, fixing all the world problems types of conversations. We have it all, had it all figured out. Um, and we were talking, and he was telling me about uh, what he calls his theology of a hug. His theology of a hug. He was telling me the story about uh, a contentious denominational meeting he was in. Now, I know that's hard to believe that such a thing would ever exist, that when church people get together, that they wouldn't be in complete agreement about everything. I know it's hard to imagine, but in some places out there somewhere, it does happen from time to time. And Chuck was at one of those types of meetings, and things just had you gone off the rails and people were just getting all uptight and bent out of shape and feelings were getting hurt and it just was going the wrong direction. And they, they called a, a, a pause, a timeout, and Chuck spoke up and he made this ridiculous suggestion that everyone just turn and hug one another. Now it's a wonder, it's a wonder no one got strangled to death in that moment. But as he describes it, the awkwardness and sort of the cringiness of that moment gave way to a really beautiful transformation of the the mood and the atmosphere in the room. It's interesting, the power of, of touch. Tactile, physical, sensory affirmation 
of personhood. In, in, in contact, we, we feel the, the, the point in space where I end and you begin. And in that moment, we, we feel with one of the senses that we're not just a, a nameless face in the crowd, but we are a distinct person. A person in, in fellowship, in communion with another person. And in that moment, you affirm me. You affirm my existence. You affirm my value. Remember, the senses are part of God's very good design. They were not something that were introduced into creation after the fall as some sort of consequence of sin. No, they were part of God's very good design. And God himself in Christ entered into this physical, spiritual world that we live in, and he became touchable. And contact with Jesus had consequence. And in the case of this woman, it did what nothing else in her life could do. Now, however obscure her motives were, they weren't more obscure than her identity. And that's something that leaps off the page here as we read, as we read the story. She is literally a nobody. And we know that in the question in verse 45. Who touched me? Who, who touched me? In, in the Greek, it's worth noting that the question is framed in the masculine rather than the feminine. It's interesting, isn't it? This, this suggests that this story is one of the very few instances in all of the Gospels where the reader actually knows more of what's going on than Jesus himself. Now, that's not meant to threaten your view of Jesus as fully divine. It's to reinforce the fact that Jesus is fully human also. In his finite humanity, Jesus let go of his divine omniscience. It's one of the things he emptied himself of the, the privilege of. He laid it aside. He didn't lay aside his divinity. He laid aside, laid aside the exercise of his divinity. He did not have exhaustive om, om, omniscience. And we see that right here. He has no idea who touched him. It's, it's incredible, especially considering Luke multiple times goes out of his way to make sure the reader understands that Jesus also had a supernatural insight into the minds and hearts of others. We've seen that the last two weeks, haven't we? Where people thought or said something to themselves and Jesus perceived it and he spoke into it. And you might say, well, why does he know, seem to know more than the typical person here and not over here? And the only answer I can come up with is, well, in that moment, the, the spirit reveals things to him on the fly. And in this story, the Spirit withholds the information. It's just fascinating to me. And I don't think the purpose of this is to, is to start some sort of theological debate where we, we, we spend more time than we already have talking about the nuances of his divine and human natures or you know, what, um, what omniscience is or isn't and what Jesus knows or doesn't know. I don't think that's the point that Luke is trying to make. I think the point Luke is trying to make is he wants us to know at that moment, up to that moment, this woman is literally a nobody. She's a no one. She is the, the definition 
of just a face in the crowd. And one, by the way, who is absolutely horrified at the notion of being identified. The last thing in the world she came looking for was recognition. We see it in the text. When, when Jesus turns and says, who did that? She doesn't say a word. No, one's, no one says anything except Peter, who puts his foot in his mouth, as always. She doesn't say a word. Her plan was to just fight her way through the crowd, undetected. I can almost picture her crawling on the ground between people's legs. That's how desperate she was to remain anonymous. If she could just, just get a touch, and then she could withdraw and slip away, and no one would be any the wiser. That was her plan. But she underestimated Jesus. She underestimated him. For all of the speculation of what she expected and what her motives were and what she hoped to get out of it, what actually happened so far exceeded what she ever could have imagined. And Jesus felt it. And he whips her around and he says, who did that? Who did that? Peter, being Peter, I can see him just kind of like rolling his eyes at Jesus. Jesus, everybody touched you. He says it. Everybody. You're being, you're being crushed like a grape. The, the meaning of the verb he uses. You're being crushed. You're being squeezed. We're all being squeezed. Jesus, these people are smelly and dirty and unclean, and who knows what I'm getting from them. You hear the desperation in his voice. You hear the condescension. You hear the eye rolling and the sigh. It's the same kind of tone we get from him back when, when Jesus first encounters him. You know, they've been out fishing all night, and they come back in, and they're tired and dirty, and they haven't caught anything. And Jesus says, hey, let's go fishing. And Peter's like... <laughs> it's the same type of attitude. It's, it's sort of like an ancient Near Eastern, duh. <laughs> duh, Jesus, everybody's touching you. The street is packed. And Jesus replies in verse 46, no, no, no. No, someone touched me deliberately. This was different. I felt it. It was her. It was her. The woman trying to sneak out the back. It was her. That desperate, filthy, nameless nobody. Do you relate to her at all? Who here has felt at some point in their lives like a Desperate, filthy nobody. Just another face in the crowd of no real value with no one to genuinely care about you. Like you could just vanish off the face of the earth and no one would even notice that you were gone. Or just dirty. Who here has just felt dirty polluted, defiled. I'm not talking about on the outside. I'm talking about on the inside. Hearts polluted by sin and crippled with shame and filled with regret. Desperate for something different, 
desperate to matter, desperate to come into contact with someone, something, anything that can make a real difference in my life. Who has felt like that before? Well, even if no one else has, I can tell you this, even the best pastor priest of 2020 has felt that way before. And I suspect those feelings are more common to the human experience than not. Do you know what else? In my lowest, most desperate and broken place in life, I discovered the same thing that that nameless, bleeding outcast did that day, that Jesus cared even about me. And I discovered, just like she did, that Jesus' touch offers what no one else has to offer. And that is true healing power where it is needed most. And if you haven't detected it yet, you're not paying attention. For the last several weeks, that has been a recurring theme, hasn't it? Jesus providing what is most, yes, he provides for the immediate needs because he's good, he's gracious, he's loving, he empathizes, he cares. But that's not enough for him. Jesus provides for what is needed most. Remember last week with the paralytic. What was the greater need? Was it the ability to walk? I think in his mind it was. In his friend's mind it was. That's, they were all consumed with this idea. Our friend can't walk. He's at a disadvantage. Everyone else in his life has the luxury of mobility. And he is confined to a sleeping mat. He has to be carried around everywhere he goes. Poor Sam has experienced that this week with the broken leg stuck in a wheelchair at the end of her summer. Our hearts break for her. But she's just missing a few weeks of the fun. Why, the, the paralytic, he's perhaps been paralyzed his whole life. That's all that matters, is if he could just walk again. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> oh, and by the way, to show you I have the authority to forgive sins, get up. It's beautiful. Jesus is focused with a laser beam on what matters most. And this story, too, is about more than just the miraculous cessation of a 12-year bleed. Remember back at the beginning, we pointed out that it's a story within a story. And those two stories are connected. And I didn't draw out the connection because I wanted to wait till now. Did you notice how long Luke tells us that the woman had suffered her bleeding? Do you remember how long? 12 years. Did you happen to look back at the beginning of verse 42? We started at the second half of verse 42. Look at the first half. Notice anything about the age of Jairus' daughter? Is that a coincidence? Is that just incidental to the text? That, that both these 
characters in this embedded story are bound in some way like that, it's not coincidental. It's not an accident. Who knows how many countless other times in the ministry of Jesus he was on the way to heal somebody or to minister to somebody or to meet some sort of need and he was pressed in upon and someone else had a need and he stopped to deal with it first. I bet you it happened every day. And yet we get this story right here for this reason. What is the reason? Why are these, why has Luke stacked these together and bound them as he has and embedded them together in such a way? Well, maybe it's that we might see that the power of God at work in his, in his one and only son to heal a hemorrhage is the exact same power at work that can raise the dead. It's all one power. There's nothing that limits Jesus. There's nothing he doesn't care about. There's nothing he can't touch. There's nothing he's unconcerned with in your life. And these stories, these embedded stories, well, they too are nested within a larger story about Jesus, of God himself taking on flesh, coming into contact with our uncleanness, and what the eternal implications of that actually are. The power he extends in the story exacts a cost to himself, doesn't it? Power went out of me, Jesus said. How much more does that happen on the cross that the power he exercises to heal exacts a cost to himself. He feels it going out. From his body, blood too will flow. But his blood has the power not to make unclean. His blood has the power to save. His blood has the power to restore. His blood has the power to redeem. His blood has the power to take your uncleanness and make it clean. It all points to that. This whole story points to that. This whole story is a picture of the gospel. Jesus, for this woman, at this point in her life, he affirms her existence. In this moment, for the first time in at least 12 years, she knows that she's a person that matters. She's not just a a nameless face in the crowd escaping detection, this tortured soul, estranged and cut off. No, Jesus personalizes her. He personalizes her. He separates her from the crowd. And in so doing, it doesn't embarrass her. Maybe at first she was, <laughs> she was probably horrified at first, but that's not his goal. His goal is not to horrify or embarrass or to belittle. His goal is to personalize her, to affirm her existence. Daughter, you matter. You matter to God. You matter to me. You have value. And I offer you what no one else in this world can offer you. I offer you healing. I offer you identity. I offer you wholeness. I offer you peace. She comes to him a a nobody. And she walks away a daughter of God. Man, it was scandalous for Jesus to refer to her as daughter. In that context, with that relationship, that made no sense, but it made sense to him. And I think it made sense to her. 
Because that's the consequence of coming into contact with Jesus in a saving way is we become sons and daughters of God. This story is the gospel in a nutshell. It is a promise of what happens to all who come to Jesus in faith. It declares that you matter to God no matter how broken you are, no matter the mistakes you've made, no matter the poor decisions you've, you've made in life, no matter how dirty you feel, no matter how rejected and lonely and isolated or outcast you might be. He is the God who makes himself touchable, even to people like us. And his power is the power to heal and to save it is the power to meet our immediate needs, but it's also the power to meet our greatest need and raise us back to life from the grave. Because at the end of the day, all of our infirmities and things we struggle with pale in comparison to the looming reality of death that every one of us will face. You might be the healthiest person in here. Nino? You can eat all the bacon in the world. You're still going to die. Unless he comes before then. Which he probably will. I don't know. Every one of us in here faces it. Who has the power to raise the dead? Jesus. Jesus. And his power enables you and me to experience the peace. The peace that comes from belonging to God as his very own sons and daughters by grace. The crowds were drawn to him for a reason. Everywhere he went, the people pressed in. But those who reached out to him, deliberately, like she did, those who reach out to him by faith, well, they experienced the true, deeper life-transforming, healing power of God. The same that's offered to you and to me today. So as we close the service, and Jeff and the, whoever in the worship team comes up to lead us in a closing song, this is your invitation to press into Jesus. And I know you can do that from where you're sitting. I get it. And you're welcome to do just that. I hope every one of us here reaches out to Jesus through song, through prayer, through praise, right from where you are. But maybe there's someone who feels a little more desperate today. Maybe they feel like that woman. Maybe for you, like for her, it wasn't enough to, to reach out metaphorically from a distance. Maybe, maybe you need to draw. This can be a place for that. And there's something, there's something meaningful about moving out of our comfort zone and coming to a, another physical location to experience the presence of God. Maybe someone would like to join you and you can come and pray together as, as, a, as friends or as family or maybe you would like me to pray with you or Pastor Richard, I'm sure, probably make his way up here in a moment. You can come and tap us on the shoulder and we'll come pray. Reach out to Jesus. Reach out to Jesus as you feel led. He's the only one in your life, the only one who can meet you at your real place of need and provide for you what no one else can provide. Lord, thank you that you have made yourself touchable. That, that in, in Christ, in your son, 
you exposed yourself to our uncleanness. Whether in the Gentile East or the Jewish West, the whole world is represented here. This world so defiled and corrupted and polluted, not environmentally, but at the level of our hearts. We all have acquired depravity and defilement through sin. And Jesus, you come to meet us right where we are. You're not disgusted by us. You're not turned away from us. You're only ever drawn toward us, and you invite us to be drawn toward you. I pray, Lord, that this will be a morning of contact for somebody. Somebody who, who reaches out knowing that you have already reached out to them. And in that touch, that there would be healing and restoration, salvation, transformation. Lord, we, when we touch you, we do not make you unclean. You make us clean. May you make us clean here this morning. Personalize your people. May we each sense our own unique, precious, sacred personhood that is a gift from you and is experienced within the community of faith. Persons affirming persons who find their identity not within themselves, but in you and in one another. Lord, may that take place in each of our lives this morning. And through it all, we pray that you would be lifted up and you would be glorified and that your name would be proclaimed, your goodness would be proclaimed here and beyond these walls and to the ends of the earth. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. You come as you feel led.